Welcome back to the God's Story podcast, calling us back to the gospel and to the word of God. And today we're looking once again at a Christian view of literature, which is one of the uh, sub-themes of this podcast. And there's no more beloved Christian author, really, than C.S. Lewis. And so today I'm joined by Dr. David Downing, co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States. And he's, well, he's one of the world authorities on C.S. Lewis. And he's written four books, uh, Planets in Peril, The Most Reluctant Convert, Into the Wardrobe, which is obviously about the Narnia Chronicles, and that's the one we're going to be asking him about today, and Into the Region of Awe, a study of how Lewis's wide reading in Christian mysticism enhanced his own faith and enriched his imaginative writing. Into the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis and the Narnia Chronicles is published by Jossie, is it Jossie Bass, David? Is that how it's pronounced? Or Jossie Bass? Jossie Bass, yeah, published by Jossie Bass in the States. So, David, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. I'm really glad to join you today. I've had past conversations with you, which have been very enjoyable, so I'm glad we can talk again. Yeah, I love those interviews that we did. Uh, that was about 15 years ago, David, now, when I was in I England. So. Yeah. Well, I was, I was just... Uh, I a uh, schoolboy then, wasn't I? <laughs> you were. You were a young man of 21. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I was just talking uh, on the God Story podcast to Lewis Marcos uh, yesterday, in fact, about a Christian view of ancient myth. We were talking about C.S. Lewis. And how did Lewis view myth? Well, that's interesting because as a young man, he was reading uh, Joseph Fraser's The Golden Bough, which convinced him that the Christian story was only one more example of the dying God myth. There was Osiris in Egyptian mythology. There was Balder in most Norse mythology. So Jesus dying for humanity was just one more example of the dying God myth. So in his teens and twenties, Lewis had a long period of atheism and he thought the dying God myth was an example of why no religion is true. They're all just uh, mythical interpretations of history. But when he met uh, Tolkien in the late 20s in Oxford, Tolkien said, well, let's think about that. Maybe they do have all these dying God myths in other cultures. But in the Christian story, Jesus came into history. He was born under Augustine in Jerusalem in a specific historical place and time. And suddenly, the dying God myth became his, history. As Lewis says in an essay, myth became fact. And that was a very powerful argument for Lewis that why shouldn't all the world's mythologies point to the truth of God having to die for humanity in order to redeem it? So uh, I know uh, you mentioned Lewis Marcos. He's written a good book on dying God myths around the world. And I remember, obviously, it's a wonderful intuition that you find in mythology. Both Lewis and Tolkien had a very high view of mythology. They thought they were humans' best intuitions about the meaning of, of life. But it wasn't until myth became history that people said, this is something we can believe in. This is something we can commit, commit our lives to. This story is not simply myth or intuition. This is history. Uh, yeah, so I love that book by uh, Lewis Marcos about how specifically all these mythologies became incarnated in the real world in Jerusalem in the, the first uh, century. Mm. How did Lewis's study of ancient myth form him, do you think, as a writer and a thinker? Well, he was um, a very unusual young man. He was born in Belfast. His mother died when he was nine, which is very traumatic. His father sent him off to 
boarding schools in England, which was even more traumatic within a month of his mother's death. And so I always felt bereft. He always felt like he was searching for something unknown. Uh, he felt there was what he called the uh, uh, the eternal bliss of, of Eden uh, when, before his mother died. But after he was shipped off to England, he really said, well, these are wonderful stories, but his imagination and his intellect were totally separate. He went to boarding schools in England, which he didn't like, and then he went to a tutor named Kirkpatrick, who he did like, but he was a strenuous atheist. So his feeling was on one hemisphere of my brain is reality, which is kind of grim and meaningless. The other hemisphere of my brain is mythology and story and fantasy. He loved Norse myth. He loved uh, European legends. He loved legends of talking animals. So he had a, a split brain throughout his teens and 20s. And uh, I think what Tolkien and others allowed him to do was to bring together these very powerful imaginative intuitions about the nature of reality with his intellectual analysis. And Lewis always insisted that reason is an ally of imagination. After he became a Christian, he never thought there was uh, any kind of a tension or division between those two. Actually, they complemented each other. I was doing an earlier interview in which I said that Lewis spent his teens and 20s uh, believing that sociology and natural sciences were reality and mythology was only a pleasant myth. And Tolkien said, no, let's reframe that. Maybe mythology is an intuition of reality, such as we see in, in Christianity. So, uh, but then Lewis, once he became a Christian, he became an extremely powerful writer. He went from a minor poet to one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century, just because of his conversion. Whereas Tolkien, he loved to dabble with his stories, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, but he never really made a serious effort to get them published and Lewis kept insisting, this is great literature. This is wonderful fantasy. You're creating a whole new genre. You need to move forward. Uh, I was doing an earlier interview and I said, you know, if it wasn't for Tolkien, we might never have heard of Lewis because he might never become a Christian. But if it wasn't for Lewis, we might never have heard of Tolkien because he might not have really gone, followed through and published his writings. And the interviewer said, yes, and if it wasn't for Lewis and Tolkien, we would have never have heard of you. Uh, which I thought was kind of uncalled for, you know, I thought that was, but it, they had a fascinating relationship. It was very complimentary and uh, they had a synergy between the two of them, which made them much more powerful as writers together than either one of them would have been individually. And they both wrote what we would call children's stories, I suppose. Uh, they did. What, yeah. And to what, to what extent did Lewis want to preserve his sense of childhood into his adult years? Well, Lewis had a uh, very strong sense that his childhood, before his mother died at the age when he was nine, uh, uh, it, his life was full of wonder and imagination and self-forgetfulness. Uh, but once his mother died, he went off to boarding schools, and he always contrasted the words childhood to boyhood. Boyhood meant boarding school, competition, bullying, uh, a lack of imagination, the fantasies were about, I, I will be a star athlete rather than I will go off to this wonderful other world. And so Lewis always felt that um, he was cut off from his childhood by his boyhood. And it wasn't until he was an adult that he recovered this sense of childlike wonder about the world and self-forgetfulness. And Tolkien helped him a lot with this. 
Lewis said, in many ways, you're much more open to uh, fantasy and imagination at the age of 50 than you are at the age of 15, which reflects uh, comments on Chesterton. I've been reading a lot of Chesterton lately. Chesterton said, I was smarter at six than I was at 16, feeling that there's something about that adolescent period, which is very competitive and very um, self-interested uh, and kind of a superficial rationality. And they both felt they had to recover from adolescence. Both Chesterton and Lewis felt like they were better off once they reclaimed the, the childhood that they'd had as, uh, in the early years. I think Ian Wilson wrote uh, or suggested that Lewis wrote the Narnia Chronicles for the child that was within himself. Do you think that's true? I think that is very true. He's writing in the 50s. He starts in 1950 with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote them all with amazing speed. He wrote someone in 1948. I'm thinking about writing some children's stories along the line of Edith Nesbitt, who was someone he enjoyed as a child. Uh, she's forgotten now, but she wrote some classic stories about the, the uh, amulet, the story of the amulet and other things. I was talking to a student about her story, the, the story of the amulet, and I noticed in her notes she wrote the story of the omelet. So that was, I need, I need to pronounce my, uh, my words more clearly. But I think that Lewis uh, kind of embraced his own childhood. When he starts The Magician's Nephew, he says, this story begins when the Bastables were still looking for uh, secrets in Lewisham Road, which is Edith Nesbitt, and Sherlock Holmes was still solving mysteries. And he's very much writing not to children of the 50s. He didn't know their slang, and he wasn't that close to children personally. He tended to have a, a, in kind of a enjoyable social relationships, but he didn't have any really emotionally engaged relationships with children in his 50s when he wrote these. And a lot of the illusions, even the diction, he says, oh, he's a real brick, or uh, a lot of the language, it's the language of his childhood in uh, the first decade of the 20th, 20th century. It's not the language of children in the 50s. So I would agree with that. In many ways, when he writes Narnia, he's emotionally getting back to the world where his mother might still be alive. He loved talking animals. He loved uh, knights in armor. Uh, he was still, in, in his early stages, he was attached to Christianity and the idea of a benevolent God who really tried to make life work out for people. So in many ways, Narnia, I think, has returned to his childhood before his mother died. He started the Narnia books with, he, he wrote, I think, that he, he, the images came first. So the first thing was the image right. of, of a fawn with an umbrella. Right. On a snowy day. On a snowy uh, day. And, and someone, on a snowy asked him, day. someone asked him, why was there a lamppost in Narnia? And that meant he had to go and write something, another book. Exactly, exactly. He was fascinating. Many people come up with a character or a plot idea, like two people are stuck in an elevator who hate each other. Many novels start with a plot idea, or I want this character who is a basketball player, but he's only five foot seven. So they start with a character idea or a plot idea. And Lewis explained in an essay called uh, On Fairy, I mean, uh, sometimes a, a children's story says best what must be said, that he started with mental images. It shows the creative process is much more mysterious than you often get in creative writing classes. 
we often start with an idea for plot or an idea for character. So he said, I saw this fawn with an umbrella carrying packages on a snowy day. And I was dreaming of lions. And I had an image of a beautiful but cruel woman riding in a sleigh. And so what happened was these images were longing for a form. Is this a poem? Is this a play? Is it a children's story? And there's something wonderfully incarnational about the idea that you have these floating images, but they need to be incarnated or enfleshed in a story. And they started reconnecting themselves. I have my own theory about the, the uh, fawn with the, with the packages and an umbrella on a snowy day. Uh, I think he came up with that image, he said, when he was in his teens, right about the same time he read George MacDonald's Fantasties. And I think the fawn is his love of classical mythology. I think the umbrella is his love of English weather. He said he always loved English weather, regardless of the climate. He said, I like sunshine. I like snow. I like overcast. Uh, and the, the, uh, even the, uh, postal care, uh, the, post the packages he's carrying, in uh, his letters, as a young man, he's always saying, I just got Cervantes' Don Quixote. I just got uh, this book. I just got this wonderful thing. And I think he associated packages with, for him, books were like Christmas presents. You open them up, and here's this wonderful edition. He not only loved the content, he loved a well-printed book. Good pages, good printing, good binding. And so I don't, he never said this, but intuitively, I think his image from his teens was the perfect image of classical mythology plus English weather plus a lot of intellectual stimulation. So that, that fawn was one of the early images that really propelled forward uh, his Narnia Chronicles. And the wardrobe. You have the wardrobe at, uh, Wheaton, at the um, Marini Wade Center, apparently. That's right. Uh, we have a center, we have a, a very visionary professor at Wheaton in the 60s who said that, you know, C.S. Lewis is going to become a very influential writer in the Christian world or in the whole world. He started collecting first editions and letters in 1965 called the C.S. Lewis Collection. And then he wanted to add Tolkien and Owen Barfield and Charles Williams, uh, friends of Lewis's, uh, fellow Inklings. And then he said, let's add in Dorothy Sayers, she was also a good friend of Lewis. Let's add in uh, Chesterton and George MacDonald, who are great influences on Lewis. So we now have seven authors who we collect all their primary works, all the editions, uh, whatever book has been written about them, plus dissertations, plus magazine articles. You could easily write a, uh, a dissertation on one of our seven authors just by visiting the building. You would never have to go online on a computer. It's all right there. Uh, we do have the wardrobe. Um, Lewis, when he was growing up in Belfast, he had this beautiful heirloom wardrobe that was built by their grandfather. That's it's hand carved wood, and even the hinges are hand hand pounded metal. And so he and his brother Warren, when they were very little, would climb into this very sturdy wardrobe, and they would tell each other stories. So Lewis always uh, associated a wardrobe with this portal to fantasy, this portal to imagination. And so I don't think it's surprising at all that when he was in his 50s, he decided to write a story about people who go into an alternative reality through a wardrobe. Mm. For me, it's a very logical portal considering Lewis's own life. Mm. And in what sense is each Narnia book like a little wardrobe? 
well, I think it's interesting because each one, uh, they talk about different kinds of fantasies. A portal fantasy, you start in our world and you carry it off to an alternative reality. There's also an immersion fantasy where the very first sentence, you're already in a different reality. And I'd love to contrast Lewis and Tolkien because Tolkien starts out, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. We're already in Middle Earth. There's no transport, there's no portal. And uh, Tolkien had a theory that the best way to honor God and his creativity is to create a secondary world, which is completely self-subsistent. And uh, Tolkien didn't want to have anything in Middle Earth remind you of Earth. He doesn't quote Shakespeare. He doesn't say this is sort of like a steam engine. Uh, Lewis is used to doing that in Narnia. He doesn't mind the, re helping readers understand a situation in Narnia by comparing it to our world. So Lewis was into portal fantasies. And I think every one of the, the uh, Narnia Chronicles is a kind of portal. You, you start out in our world and someone's carried to Narnia. They're spiritually transformed. And they usually come back to our world a much better person for having been in Narnia for a while. We have this wonderful wardrobe I told you about. We just today, we have children that come to visit the Wade Center. We have Lewis's desk and we have Tolkien's desk and we have some of their pipes and their writing implements and their, their drawings. But everybody loves the wardrobe the most. And uh, little children will come and open the wardrobe and they'll knock on the back of the wardrobe to see if it leads anywhere. Uh, they love that idea of a portal. Uh, right now, the way it's set up, I would like to put in a trap door that they fall through to gift shop land. Uh, they would actually say, oh, wow, here I am with all the postcards and the sweatshirts. And, uh, yes, but I do believe each one is a portal. It transports you from our sometimes pedestrian material world to a world of fantasy and wonder and a spiritual possibility. And I think he's done a wonderful job in each of the seven chronicles of making them into... Uh, visions of what might be an, a fantasy world or an imaginative world that could also be a world full of spiritual dimensions and insights and possibilities. And his life, I think you've written also in your books, was a search for the what the romantics called the blue flower or joy. Right, right. Um, both uh, of his early, was surprised by joy, his memoir and a book he, called, he wrote called Pilgrim's Regress have to do with searching for this experience. As a child, he had several experiences long before he was really thinking seriously about theological things. Uh, his brother Warren brought a biscuit tin or the, the top of a, a, a cookie tin, which he put moss and twigs and trees and it made it look like a little miniature garden or a toy garden. And Lewis had this tremendous feeling of what he called the enormous bliss of Eden. It was almost like an, or, uh, an aerial view of uh, a perfect Edenic world. And he said he had this feeling of longing, like, I wish I could be transported to whatever world that is. And he said that for the rest of his life, he had experiences which made him feel this ache, but also a pleasure of this unattainable world that you could see it, but you couldn't reach it. In the Pilgrim's Regress, the whole uh, backbone of the story is the, the young man has a wonderful uh, vision of an island that's so Edenic, but it's, it's unattainable. It's across the water. And he spends the whole story trying to 
find out what that is. And he eventually finds out it's not a place, it's a person. We're, we're homesick for heaven. We've all been cast out of paradise. We've been estranged from God, but God has, has made a way for us to get back to paradise and to be in relationship with God. So that theme comes up throughout Pilgrim's Regress by Lewis. It all comes also comes through in his memoir, Surprised by Joy. But I think that's a very important theme in the Narnia Chronicles, which is getting back to uh, a right relationship with God, which feels like this longing, it's called the blue flower motif. You always uh, see something in the distant, the distant horizon that looks so wonderful and awesome and numinous, but you can't reach it. My wife and I had this experience. We went to college in Santa Barbara, a beautiful uh, town in Southern California. And uh, one day we were up in the mountains looking down on the marina. It was so blue and there were sailboats and it looked so cool. And we were up in the mountains that were kind of dusty and people were driving by in their Jeeps with their radios on too loud. And we said, what are we doing up here in the mountains? So we jumped in my car. We drove down to the marina. It smelled like kelp and old fish. It was full of tourists. And we looked back up the mountains and they were so green against the sky and so solemn. And we said, what are we doing at the marina? We should be up in the mountains. And I think it was a perfect example of Sinsuk. It's always something beautiful in the distance, but it's unattainable. And Lewis makes good use of that throughout uh, the Narnia Chronicles. Even when the children hear the name Aslan, they all have this kind of numinous experience, this feeling of something spiritual and mysterious and important, which they can't quite reach or understand with reason. And the three children who are on the right road spiritually they love this, the name Aslan. They don't even know that Aslan's a lion. They don't know that Aslan is the ruler of Narnia. But that name just for them creates these wonderful feelings inside. Whereas Edmund, who's kind of going in the wrong track already in that part of Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, he feels kind of uncomfortable and he wants to get away from the name and he wants to escape from the, his siblings. So it's a fascinating motif that uh, Lewis spiritualizes that you... It comes from German Romanticism, the blue flower, flower motif. But Lewis says, well, you know, I think as Christians, we understand what this is. Uh, we want to be in right relationship with God. We want to love him. We want to understand his nature. Uh, we want to be enveloped by his, his golden goodness. But we've been estranged and we're trying to get back to that, that relationship. And Aslan is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, right. Ultimately... And we see that especially in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Uh, I have to tell you, I was teaching in a non-Christian college, and a student said, I read the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, but why do people say it's Christian? And I said, well, Aslan gives his life for someone else's guilt. Uh, he's dead, and they're all heartbroken because he's gone, because he's the most wonderful person they've ever met. But then he comes back to life, and they're jubilant that he's there with them again. Doesn't that remind you of anything? And my student said, oh, is it kind of like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings? Uh, so she read all of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and she had so little biblical background that she didn't make the connection. Of course, in a way, Tolkien's doing the same thing. He's trying to remind you that this wonderful leader and mentor uh, is the, the person who might have to die and, and come back in order to help us in our own spiritual journey. How does Aslan appear in other forms in other books? 
That's true. Uh, some people get too locked into the idea that Aslan is Jesus because of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. He dies and comes back to life. Uh, I think if you read all seven, uh, Lewis really wants to portray God's nature as we understand him in the, the Trinity in all seven books. And so I believe that in The Silver Chair, uh, Jill Pohl goes up to with Diggory to Aslan's country. Uh, they're pulled out of our world into Aslan's country. And Aslan is rather sev severe. She wants to drink water. And here's this great lion who says, uh, come and drink if you're thirsty. And she says, well, uh, do, you, do you eat little girls? And he says, well, I've eaten girls and boys and, and men and women and kingdoms and empires. And he says, he didn't say that as if he were bragging or threatening. He just said it as a fact. And then she says, are you someone important? And he says, I am. So it's a very, uh, it's very much like Moses on the mountain. And then he gives her four signs. He says, I have an, I have a, an important mission for you. And she says, well, actually, we called you from Earth. You didn't call us. And he says, well, you would not have called me unless I had been calling you. And then he gives her four signs and says, um, repeat these every morning, every evening. Repeat them when you're at lunch. And basically, these are four signs that will help them complete their mission to rescue Prince Aurelian from this evil queen who's almost kind of a, a Satan figure. And it's very much like Deuteronomy. It's very much like God giving the Ten Commandments to the uh, the uh, to Moses. And these are it's not the Ten Commandments, but four signs, but they're capitalized. But some of the language is almost word for word out of the Book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in the Voice of the Dawn, better Aslan is more like the Holy Spirit. He doesn't intervene and fight battles, but he keeps reminding people about the better angels of their nature. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here's how you're supposed to react. Right now you're having conflicting impulses. Why not choose the one that's good for everybody rather than the one that's good only for you? And you could argue, you could argue that through the seven chronicles, you get a, a, a well-rounded view of the Trinity. Uh, there's a scene in The Horse and His Boy where uh, Shasta asks, Aslan, who he is, and he says, are you, and he says, I am, first in a very forceful voice, and then I am in a very cheerful, welcoming, nurturing voice, and then I am in a whisper, which makes the leaves rustle, which reminds you of the verse about, uh, no one knows, uh, those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind, no one knows where it comes from or where it goes. So Lewis does a beautiful job, if you read all seven books, of rounding out his view of the Trinity. His friend and biographer, George Sayer, said that even though he wrote these wonderful books, books of theology like Mere Christianity and Miracles and God in the Dock, if you want a well-rounded view of how Lewis viewed God, the best way is to read the Narnia Chronicles. Aslan imaginatively gives you the best image of how Lewis felt about his relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Aslan's sacrificial death, of course, in the books reflecting the atonement. Yes, definitely. Um, and there's a lot of details that uh, complete that idea. He uh, doesn't, when he's, he voluntarily gives himself up to the witch and, and her minions, uh, he doesn't speak in his own defense. 
they cut off his hair, they tie him up. It's very much like the scenes in the Gospels. Uh, and even the Aslan's table, the sacrificial table upon which he is killed, uh, when he when he raises from the, rises from the dead, it's broken. It's pretty much like the curtain being rent in the New Testament. The law is somehow never going to be the same now that we have redemption and grace. So language in the world is definitely the most developed image of, uh, of God as redeemer. In my book, uh, Into the Wardrobe, I mentioned that you could actually trace most of what Lewis thought about God's attributes through the, the, uh, uh, the seven novels. There's a wonderful view of God as creator in Magician's Nephew, but then there's God as redeemer in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but then there's God as the, the counselor in the Holy Spirit in Voids of the Dawn Treader, and then there's God as the final judge or the final arbiter of, of uh, the fates of, of uh, sentient souls in the last battle. So he pretty much covers all of the major roles of God in human lives through the seven chronicles. What I'm always surprised when people stop with the lion, which in the wardrobe. I want to say that's like reading Genesis and never picking up the Bible again. You pretty much need to stay with all seven stories to get a well-rounded view well, why indeed did Lewis decide to write more than one Narnia book? Well, that's a good question. He started out uh, in the late 40s saying to a friend, I, I want to write a story in the, uh, the vein of Edith Nesbitt, who was this children's writer that, once again, he liked as a child. She's uh, uh, no longer very well known, but he loved her stories. They involved a, a, a series of children having an adventure. It wasn't just Alice in Wonderland or Dorothy going to Oz. It tended to be some siblings or some friends going through this whole adventure together. And I think he liked that idea because it gives you a lot of room for human psychology between the people on the adventure. There's a lot of arguments and reconciliations and, and good human psychology uh, among the children. You can tell that he remembered childhood very clearly. He remembered the kind of spats you get into and he remembered the the kinds of issues that are important to children. In one place, the Polly's having a, a a good cry and she's very upset. Diggory just gives her a, uh, or it's not Diggory, I think it's Eustace, gives her a peppermint. He says, you know, one of the best ways to help someone recover from a good cry is getting a peppermint. And so for some reason, I think he remembers that from childhood. So he decided in the early 40s to write at least one line which in the wardrobe and he liked it. He, it was first. It was well received when it came out in 1950, and secondly, he felt like you know there's a real gold mine here of um, helping people understand the Christian faith through imagination. He later wrote a uh, an essay about writing fairy stories for children, and he said when I was young, uh, there was a kind of stress laid upon severity and solemnity and seriousness. And we saw the Christian faith through stained glass. And it was actually paralyzing. Rather than being helpful, it made you feel like this is this forbidden subject that you want to stay away from. And he said, I wondered if I could write some stories where I could help children sneak past those watchful dragons of stained glass associations. And I think once he'd written one, he felt like, wow, there was a lot to be said about helping people understand God through imagination and getting away from the overly familiar Bible verses, the liturgy, 
the solemnity of the church. So it seems to, it's hard to piece together. He started with one. He was, he was happy with the result. And it seems like he wanted to do a trilogy. He wanted to do Prince Caspian and then Voids of the Dawn Treader. Voids of the Dawn Treader gets very explicit about his Christianity at the end of the story. Uh, the, Lucy says, oh, Aslan, it's not Narnia, it's you. We can't stand the idea of being separated from you. And Aslan says, well, actually, I'm in your world also. I brought you to Narnia so that understanding me here, you could understand me better in your own world. So it seemed like kind of a wrap-up conclusion, which is read Narnia in the light of where you might meet Aslan or Christ in, in our world. But once again, he had all these ideas for stories. Uh, what were the Pevensies like as adults? Maybe we should explore that in the in the uh, uh, the um, I'm sorry, the horse and his boy. And then he said, I wish I had an underworld journey. He loved uh, the Aeneid where he goes underworld. He loved Dante. And he said, maybe I should write a Narnia story about the underworld. So then he did Silver Chair. And then he now he's up to five. And he says, well, I've never really told a creation story. So maybe I need to go back and say, where did Narnia come from? So there's Magician's Nephew. And then by the time you're that far along, you need a revelation story. You need to wrap up the whole thing. So the last battle is his Narnian take on revelation. So it started out as one, and then it became three, and it ended up as seven. And frankly, I wish he'd written nine or 11. I wish he hadn't stopped at seven. He probably had more material. But he had a feeling of closure or completion once he'd written the last battle. He felt like he'd pretty much hit on all the major themes of the biblical record and also of Christian theology in the seven books. So he seemed to be satisfied. People asked him for sequels, and he said, well, I would rather leave people wanting more rather than um, you know, feeling like, oh, well, we're tired of this series. In what sense does the last battle bring together Greek philosophy Christianity, and Norse mythology? Well, that's a good question. Um, the last battle, he loved Plato, and he realized that ultimately in uh, the last battle, the professor keeps saying, have they not read Plato? Don't they understand that there's an ideal world where things are perfect versus the material world where we only have imperfect uh, imitations of the ideal world? Now, he, he understood the limitations of Platonism, because the Platonists were shocked by the idea of the incarnation. The, uh, the world of ideas or forms is perfect. All circles that we try to draw on earth are only uh, imperfect imitations of the perfect circle that you might find in the world of ideas or forms. And that doesn't leave room for the eternal, pure, perfect God to come to earth and become a human being and to sacrifice his life for other humans so that they can be drawn up into the life of God. So he loved Platonism, and he has the professor saying, don't these people understand Plato? But he recognizes limitations. Ultimately, you have to realize that God loved matter. Matter is not evil and spirit good. Uh, when he told the story of Revelation, he has a figure who's like the Antichrist, Puzzle the Ape. He has a figure who's a little bit like the beast, uh, Shift the, the donkey. And he has some false prophets like Ginger the cat. So he's transposing Revelation into a children's story. Uh, but he also loved Norse mythology. Uh, the Norse uh, mythology, the Twilight of the Gods, 
had to do with even the gods were not immortal. Even the gods would do battle with the monsters and uh, the, the evil creatures in, and you'd have Ragnarok. You would eventually have the, the complete breakdown of the, the, uh, the Norse world. And that's very pessimistic, but he liked the ideas that maybe the world will end in flooding and cold rather than in fire or destruction. So he's not trying to give a, a direct transposition of revelation. When you look at the end of the last battle, um, it doesn't end in destruction. It ends in the rising of the waters and all the stars fall down and become human beings, which was another a medieval concept or a Norse concept. So sometimes people think he's simply trying to take the Bible and transpose it into children's literature, but he was much more synthetic than that. Uh, although he does have Peter, the oldest brother of the Pevensies, he's the one who's given the keys to sort of lock the door on the old Narnia. Uh, the, the, uh, I asked a student once, people always ask him, what's your favorite Narnia Chronicle? And I asked the student back, what's your favorite? And she said, well, my least favorite is the first half of the last battle because everything's being destroyed. There's betrayal. The trees are being cut down. The dwarves are being rebellious. But she said my favorite uh, chronicle is the last half of the last battle is my favorite because now they're in the new Narnia. This little stable is always bigger on the inside than on the outside, which is an idea that I think Lewis might have gotten from Chesterton. Chesterton uh, the church is always much bigger on the inside than on the outside. Uh, but the new Narnia is so glorious and everything's been repaired. And people that you thought were fallen have recovered. Even one of uh, these soldiers of the Calamines, Imeth, it turns out that all of his worship of Tash, this demonic god of the, the Calamines, it was done in honor and integrity and compassion. And Aslan says, well, I accept that as worship done to me. Whereas Narnians who do things out of betrayal or selfishness, those are actually uh, homage to Tash, this demonic god. The theology there is a little bit controversial because some people think Lewis is being sort of universalist. He's actually being what people call inclusivist, which is the atoning work of Christ is available to all humanity. Some humanity who think they understand the Christian story are actually in their natures um, so disappointing and so far from the spirit of Christ that they may be cast in the outer darkness. And others who don't know the name of Christ, uh, they've always lived by the light they know, and Christ will actually accept that. There, Lewis loved two passages in Scripture. One was the one about the, uh, Jesus saying, well, did you visit me in prison? Did you feed me? Did you help me when I was naked? And they said, well, no, we, we didn't do that. And he says, well, then uh, you depart from me. But another group, he says, they said, well, we didn't realize when we fed the poor and helped the naked and that sort of thing. And Jesus says, well, that would, whatever you do to them, you do to me. And that kind of blurs the boundaries between uh, who's saved and who's not saved. It kind of says your deeper spiritual nature may be what is judged rather than whether or not you attended church and said the right things in the liturgy. Uh, so some people are... Name Imeth, this Calamine soldier who uh, doesn't realize that he's doing things in the name of Aslan. That name means faithful. So even though he thought he was uh, honoring Tash, he was actually being faithful to Aslan. So you're right. There's a fascinating combination of Plato, 
the new Narnia, which is totally unspoiled, everything bad that happened in physical Narnia is going to be healed and repaired, the new earth and the new heaven. But also, obviously, Christianity, a view of judgment, but the Norse mythology of the raising of the waters and the falling of the stars out of the sky. He had a very synthetic imagination. He loved to take everything that appealed to him in his imagination and to weave it together into a coherent story. You mentioned Twilight of the Gods. Was Lewis a Wagner enthusiast? He was. He loved the uh, mythology ever since he discovered it as a teenager. Part of the, the basis for his first friendship with Arthur Greaves was they found the same book on Norse mythology on their book tables. And they went on and on about Thor and Loki. And these things are now Marvel comics, but at the time they were, they were fairly uh, not well known. And so he loved that mythology. Uh, he loved Wagner. He said he didn't really understand the music, but he loved the storyline. He loved the libretto. He just, he was, he was really a sucker for fantasy and other worlds. And uh, so it was not the music or the theme as much as it was the idea of all these supernatural creatures interacting. And as I say, he interwove that into several of his stories, especially in The Last Battle. And the idea of northernness, which you write about. Right. Northernness. northernness. What, what is northernness? Well, he discovered that, once again, in this book that they read, uh, uh, Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, is a book he read as a teenager. And there was just these great spacious skies. There was ice. There were these supernatural creatures. Uh, there was actually a hint of eroticism. Some of Arthur Rackham's uh, illustrations of the book are kind of thinly clad goddesses. So he had this feeling. It, it evoked in him Sinsuk. We talked earlier about sweet desire. And even as a child, when he read Beatrice Potter, he loved the idea of autumn. He loved the idea of falling leaves and these wonderful, robust smells. And uh, that evoked in him a sense that there's, there's some other world other than our world, which is so wonderful, and I need to get there. Ironically, he would read Beatrix Potter. He would actually go out in the woods around his home, and there was it just wasn't magical. It made him think of the book. It's like, oh, I wish I could go back and read the book. So one of those... Um, triggers for sweet desire or the unattainable longing, which he understood later to be the being homesick for heaven or, or seeking to overcome our estrangement with God. Uh, another, another trigger was northernness, uh, spacious skies, icebergs, supernatural creatures, these epic adventures among uh, Thor and Loki and all the other gods. Uh, and so he constantly, anything that was a trigger for him, a sweet desire or the unattainable longing became very important for him. For a long time, he sought them for their own sake. And he finally said, oh, these are just pointers. These are just images. We're all trying to get back to God. We're all homesick for heaven. We all want to be in relationship with God. And that's broken. And so finally, it wasn't until he got to Christian theology that he realized that all of these things had been emotional pointers toward the truth of Christian theology. Ironically, he said that uh, the Christian mythology or the Old Testament stories of, of uh, Adam and Moses and uh, Samson and all the great stories of the Old Testament, he said that was his third favorite mythology or great epic stories. He loved uh, the Northern stories the best, and then he loved Celtic mythology. 
he loved Arthur and the Mabinagion and all these things. For him, the Bible came third, just in terms of emotional attraction. But ultimately, of course, the Bible became first because this is rooted in history. This wasn't just a wonderful product of human imagination. This is actually a pointer to the meaning of our lives and the meaning of human history. Mm. Well, Dr. David Downing, thank you, sir, for your time. Your students are indeed fortunate to have you as their teacher. It's been great talking. Uh, thank you so much, Brent. It's I always enjoy talking to you. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Yes, I, I learn heaps. I really do. Uh, Dr. David Downing, co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States, and the four books are Planets in Peril, The Most Reluctant Convert, Into the Wardrobe, published by Jossie Bass, and Into the Region of Awe, a study of how Lewis's wide reading in Christian mysticism enhanced his own faith and enriched his imaginative writing. Thank you, sir, so much for your time. Great. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. Thank you.